So open your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through the beginning of 17. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through part of 17. James Montgomery Boyce was the late pastor and theologian of the 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia in He was a prolific writer and reader. Uh, Boyce was a a champion of biblical authority and inerrancy. He's written uh, numerous books on on those topics and and others. He he took over for another well-known pastor. That would be Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, Not long after he went to be with with the Lord back in the the 60s, I believe it was, 1960, When Boyce was doing his educational work, he had a lot of books to read. And those of you who have been in higher education, formal education, know that that that's usually a a requirement. And the higher you go, the more books that uh, are required and the more technical they, they, they are. And so he said he developed a system to help him get through all of the books. Um, he said when he would start one course that would have 10 or 12, and he had another course that would have uh, 10 or 15, uh, he, would, he would look at the books like enemy soldiers. And he, those soldiers had to be shot down. And so each time he would finish a book, when he would close it, he would say to himself, there's another dead soldier. And he'd put the book on, on, on his shelf. It's actually the story that he uses to introduce the passage that's in front of us this morning because he said in, in, in some way that's what the Apostle Paul has, has been doing in this chapter. He's been shooting down enemy soldiers in this battle for the gospel that Paul has been engaged in. He's preached this gospel uh, on two or three missionary journeys and He's now writing about this gospel to, to the Romans, and he has met enemies to the gospel uh, uh, along the way. And Paul is shooting them down. He shot down the enemy of works in verses 1 through 8. The adversary of ceremonies, particularly circumcision, we saw last week. And the final enemy on his list is the enemy of the law. And he saved his biggest guns for this enemy combatant at in verses 13 through, through 17. And Paul will round out this chapter with, with actually a picture of biblical faith. What, we've been talking about faith a lot. What does faith look like? Abraham, again, will be our example. But, but since the beginning of chapter 4, Paul's been giving evidence for this gospel that, that he's been preaching, and he's going back to the Old Testament. Salvation has always been by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and he's been proving that point by point, he says it's by faith and not by works. It's by faith and not by circumcision. And now he says it's by faith and not and not law. And and all of that, chapter four, came on the the, the heels of a sobering look of, of our need for someone or something outside of us to save us. I mean, he 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 showed us our hearts in chapter three, and before that, the heart of a religious person. Before that, an irreligious person, and. And, and after doing that, he, he, he pointed us in the right direction. There's glorious hope in the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And, and that gospel is rooted in a promise. He's going to tell us this morning. God provides righteousness to us 
by a gracious gift. And the way that, that we receive that is, is by faith. And, and that's true regardless of, of who we are, Jew or Gentile, and regardless of the time period, the Old Covenant or, or now in the dawning of the, of the New. And to prove this, Paul begins by calling Abraham and David as a witness to, concer- to confirm it. Abraham was saved by faith, as was King David. David even wrote about the blessedness of this, of this faith and this grace in Psalm 32. And he, but he presses it beyond, uh, beyond just faith. He shows it's by faith alone. Uh, Jewish people or religious people may say faith is, 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 is necessary, but it's faith plus something else. And so Paul pushes beyond faith and he shows it's, it's by faith alone. That was last week, verses 9 through 12. Paul clearly demonstrated that salvation does not include ceremony. In fact, religious ceremonies, whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper or circumcision, have no part in salvation whatsoever. And Paul now makes clear, just as circumcision is not the requirement for gaining righteousness, neither is living by the law. That's not a guarantee that you'll receive God's promises. And that was a big deal to somebody who was a Jewish person. Somebody who was born into Judaism, like the Apostle Paul, believed that they would inherit the promises of God for those two reasons. I have been circumcised according to the covenant, I performed the ceremonies, and I have been made righteous by by keeping in step with the law. I recite the Shema every morning, I I keep the feasts, I, I go to the temple. The focus of verses 13 through 17 is the promise of God. The promise that was given to Abraham doesn't come through either of those things, particularly the law. This section has, uh, has two parts. Uh, verses 13 through 15, Paul shows that Abraham did not receive the promise that he would inherit the world because he observed the law. That came through faith. And then verses 16 and just peeking into verse 17, Paul shows that that promise is rooted in grace. And it will be fulfilled by God for all of Abraham's offspring uh, who have the same faith. That includes people from, from all nations. Here's how I would outline it. These are two further confirmations about God's way of salvation. It's further because he's been giving us uh, the confirmations all, all along. God's promise was not given through law. That's verses 13 and 15, and he'll explain that to us. And then he turns to the positive side of the coin and says God's promise is gained through faith. And that's in verse 16 and and 17a. Not given through law is gained through faith. Two confirmations about God's way of salvation. Let me show you them one at a time. Here's the first one. God's promise to Abraham was not given through any law, and he tells us why. Because that would negate the promise itself, two verses, and because that would actually generate wrath if it was by law in verse 15. Look, if you would, at verse 13 when Paul starts his argument here. He says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul begins with the little word for, meaning that this is not a new idea. It's a new idea, but it's connected to an idea that was before. It means that Paul's explaining something. He's going to provide additional data, and 
He just got done saying last week in verses 11 and 12 that, that Abraham is the father of all who believe. He's the father of faith, both Jew and Gentile. And now he explains the reason that he is, the reason that, that he is that way. It's because the promise that God's people will inherit the world was not received through the law, but through the, the righteousness of faith. It, it was, if it was, I should say, if it was received through the law, then, then it would be a promise made to Jews only because they were the ones given the law. And even they would not obtain the promise because Paul's already proven over and over that they couldn't keep the law that was given to them. They received the law, but then they didn't keep the law. And so then the promise would, would, be, would be useless. Paul introduces two new concepts here that you have to define in order to understand what he's saying. First of all, he talks about the promise to Abraham. And the second is this concept of law. I mean, what does he mean? Does he mean the Mosaic law? Does he mean law in general? And the first thing that Paul says is the... The, he talks about the promise of Abraham. And it's a noun, meaning it's, it's something specific. The promise of Abraham. It occurs the first time here in this letter. Paul's been talking about God's promises or God promises to do something like a verb, but here it's a noun. It's a person, place, or thing. It's something specific, and it's something that's rooted in the Old Testament. He's going to use this phrase four more times in this section. So if we're going to understand what Paul is talking about here, you have to define what promise does he mean? What is this promise of Abraham? So that gives us our first clue. It's a promise related to Abraham, and you only need to go back a few verses to, to get the context, to find out where you can learn about this promise, because he quotes Genesis, Genesis 15, and refers to circumcision, which is in Genesis 17. And the original promise that, that God made to Abraham, the promise of Abraham, begins when God first calls him in back, at, back in chapter 12. We looked at this last week. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then God gets even more specific as he goes along the way. Remember Genesis 15 is the actual covenant where he puts Abraham to sleep and declares him righteous. And then last week in chapter 17, the sign of the covenant, covenant's already made. How will you know whether you're in covenant? Well, it's by faith. What's, an, what's a sign of your faith? Well, you're circumcised, Abraham. But he talks about the covenant. He adds more detail. Genesis 17, 4, talking about this promise that God made. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, But Sarah shall be her name, I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her, rounding out the promise. So the promise of Abraham, the promise that God makes to Abraham was a specific land, a special blessing, and a supernatural son. 
But I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't just point back to that original promise. He actually goes forward to its fulfillment. Look at verse 13 again in Romans 4. It says, For the promise to Abraham, which included specific land, special blessing, and a supernatural son, and to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world. You see how Paul goes even beyond what, what was originally promised? I mean, Paul in Romans 4 envelops all of redemptive history here. He goes far beyond Abraham in Genesis, talking about this, this promise. He takes the promise to its fulfillment, to its future descendants, Abraham's descendants. And then he even goes into the New Covenant by mentioning heirs of the world or heirs of the earth. You see, under the original covenant, the, the promise of the land that was given to Abraham was the land of Canaan. It's what they're still fighting over, over today. And it had a specific boundary, specific boundary in the south, and it had a, a, a terminal one uh, in, in the northeast. Look at the boundaries of the, of the promised land. Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant to, to Abram and said to, to your descendants, I will give to I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And so you have from the, the wadi of Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River, which cuts over beyond uh, Iraq. There's the boundaries of the, of the promised land. And notice it has an everlasting land deed. Uh, Genesis 17, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, which goes from Egypt all the way up to Euphrates. And I'm going to give you that as an everlasting possession. And I will be their, I will be their God. And that promise is still valid today. The Jewish people don't have all of it right now because in their disobedience they've rejected their Messiah but one day they'll have all the land and much more. Paul says that that's actually going to expand beyond all of the, all the earth. And he also says they're going to have some co-owners with them. All of the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant is the, the main covenant in the Bible. And all the other covenants flow out of it or connect to it in, in some way. You know the, the covenants in Scripture. You have the Abrahamic covenant. You have the Mosaic covenant. You have the Davidic covenant, and you have the New Covenant. So the Mosaic covenant is specific to, uh, to Israel, and it's prior to the Messiah. The Abrahamic covenant is the main one. Then the, 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 the Mosaic covenant is prior to the Messiah, meaning it's temporal. And, and it instructs Israel how they're to live in the land that God promised them through Abraham. It also prepares them for the New Covenant. When the Abrahamic covenant will be completely fulfilled, they, they are circumcised in their hearts. They need to be. They need to have God's law written on their hearts, which is part of the new covenant. Then comes along the Davidic covenant, which promised an eternal king and an everlasting throne. There was the promise of kings under the Abrahamic covenant. Kings would come from Abraham. And so the Davidic covenant begins with the Abrahamic covenant. You remember in the Abrahamic covenant that it's going to be fulfilled uh, in the... Uh, by a king coming from Abraham. That king will be the seed of Abraham. The Messianic king is going to come in the new covenant when he reigns in the new Jerusalem. And all three of those promises that God made to Abraham will not be completely fulfilled until the millennial kingdom, which is going to spill over into the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, 
the, the kingdom, in the kingdom, God's people will have all of the land. In the kingdom, all the nations will be blessed through Israel. And in the kingdom, the promised seed will reign on the throne over all the earth. And what the Abrahamic covenant begins, the new covenant expands on. And when all that is fulfilled, there's going to be a new heaven and a, and a new earth. Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Or Isaiah 66.22. For just as the, the new heavens and the new earth which I will make will endure before thee, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. So the land of Canaan was promised to Abraham and the earth was promised to his descendants. And that's going to happen in the millennium. And finally, God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth for all of his people. So the promise that Paul references here is central. Why go back to the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant? Why, why talk about land and seed and blessing and how that, the prophets expand on that and how the new covenant is, is going to... Uh, and that's broken forth in, in the New Testament. That's going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Why, why go through all of that? We're not in prophecy class. Well, because that's what Paul's talking about here. Did you know that Jesus Christ actually referred to this promise, the promise in Romans 4, in a place that you may have overlooked? Do you remember the, the Sermon on the Mount? <clears throat> Matthew 5. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle. They shall inherit the earth. What's he saying there in the Sermon on the Mount? Those who have a transformed heart, illustrated by the Beatitudes, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He later says they'll see God, but here he also says they're going to inherit the earth. That, that, that's who's going, to, who's going to possess the promise that God's made. Meaning the people of God will inherit the world in the kingdom and ultimately in the new one. And it will be theirs because the ungodly will be cast out of the world. They'll be given over to punishment on the day of judgment. And so the only ones that will be left in the world will be God's people. God's people will inherit the earth and ultimately the, the, the new one. Because those who aren't God's people are going to be cast out. That's prophecy from Old and New Testament. So what was Abraham looking for? When God made this promise to Abraham, the promise that he received by faith, what was he looking for? Land in Israel or, or something more? Well, Hebrews 11 actually tells us that Abraham looked to the day that Paul described and he did by faith. Look at Hebrews 11. By faith, he, that's, that's Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And it wasn't just Abraham that was looking for the promise that Paul was talking about here. He said it was all the saints Look at the, the, the Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So Abraham wasn't just looking to the promise of an earthly Canaan, but he was looking for a better one. He was looking for a heavenly one. He didn't know all the details that you and I know, but that's what he was looking for. And that promise, Paul says, is going to be fulfilled to Abraham and to all his descendants who gain that by faith. Look back at verse 13 of Romans 4. He says, For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants goes beyond Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and to the and Israelites, and it's to all of his descendants. And that promise is that they'll be the heir of the world. In the end, they will inherit the earth. And that was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You see, if you were Jewish in Paul's time, and even today, in most cases, They believe that you became Abraham's child and heir to this promise by taking on yourself the the yoke of the Torah, the yoke of the law. That's who was inheriting the earth. Circumcised Jews made righteous by law-keeping. That's why there are Jewish cemeteries all around the the Temple Mount. And for a little over $100,000, you can get your own little six by six or so block of of ground and you're buried above ground and you're right next to the temple. They want to be buried there and pay that much money because they want to be the first to rise to enter the kingdom whenever the Messiah comes. And Paul shoots that enemy soldier down here, graveyard dead. He, He says you're wasting your money unless you have faith. The promise of Abraham to receive the world, the kingdom, was given to all of his descendants. And they're his descendants through the righteousness of faith. I mean, once again, Paul calls Abraham as evidence. He's exhibit A. Abraham himself was made this promise clearly before circumcision and long before the law was given. Galatians tells us it was 430 years before the Mosaic law was was given. God made this promise. What I am saying is this, Paul says, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. What what covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. So as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. It's not conditional. It's by promise. And not only that, God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And when He did, He made no mention of law whatsoever at all whenever He made the promise of land and seed and blessing. I mean, all that God spoke about to Abraham was the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham believed the promise that God made and his faith is the, the promise, in that promise is what God used to credit him righteousness. You can't find law anywhere in, in the Abrahamic covenant. That's the ground upon which the promise of Abraham is founded and the ground on which God will fulfill his promise to Abraham's offspring, to Abraham's seed. Now, did you notice that while Paul here in Galatians 3 appeals to chronology, 430 years. He doesn't do that in Romans. 
I mean, it's the same author, it's the same topic about law and promise and the Abrahamic covenant. But Paul doesn't say anything in Romans 4 here, in verses 13 through 17, about chronology. Like he did when he was talking about circumcision. You remember his argument last week in circumcision. The law, it would have, he would have been able to make the same argument like, like he does here in, in Galatians. Uh, look back at verse, verse 10. Um, how, was it, how was it credited? while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. It's all timing. It's all chronology. He's saying salvation doesn't involve ceremony because the ceremony came way later than the the promise. Abraham was declared righteous by faith before he was circumcised. It's all chronology. It's all timing. But, But that's not what he does here with the law because there's something more significant. There's a more significant reason that it can't be by law than by ceremony. Something more significant than timing. Your translations have added a definite article for the word law. Look at verse 13 again. It says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law. Most all of your translations say that. Mine does too but through the righteousness of faith. But the original language doesn't have that little word, the. It doesn't have a definite article there. It just says the the promise of Abraham was not through law. Paul is not just speaking about the Mosaic law. Paul is talking about God's law in the broadest sense. Law as a principle. The promise doesn't come through law as a principle. uh, Any law. The promise of salvation doesn't come through commandments or standards or any systems of God that combines our efforts with God's work. That, that's something, that's, that's a much greater uh, argument than just timing. It doesn't matter when the law would come. You wouldn't be able to keep it. So it, it, it can't be that way. It's what he's arguing. It can't be based on the principle of the law because then that would negate the promise itself. Look at verse 14. He says... For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is void, is made void, and the promise is nullified. He says the promise is nullified if it's by the law. Human beings have never been able to come to God by the means of ceremony or by the means of their conduct because that would make salvation conditional. I mean, you would inherit the promise... God's salvation, if. I mean, can you imagine if salvation was based on if, and that if was based on you? (laughs) I mean, what a hopeless reality. What a horrible situation. I mean, you would immediately then begin to have to to, to wonder, well, well, how much if? I mean, if salvation is conditional, what are the conditions? And how do I measure up to those conditions? I mean, how perfect do I have to be? But you realize that's exactly what the majority of people that you meet believe and what you believed before you, you, you came to see Christ? I mean, you ask anybody and, and they're a good person. I mean, they'll be happy to tell you. I mean, I don't know that I've ever met anyone that I've witnessed to when I ask them, do you think you're a good person? And they said, no, I'm not a good person. I'm a really bad one. I mean, you might find somebody out there like that. But most people say, I'm a good person. Based on what? What gives them the, the, the status of good? 
Well, if you ask them, they're happy to tell you. And what you'll hear is some form of law, some conditions that they, that they have met, like I keep the golden rule or I do unto others as I would have them do unto me. Or the, the, the negatives, I don't steal, I don't kill, I don't lie. I mean, of course you do, but that's a whole other sermon, right? I mean, you steal the glory of God every day, and you've probably stolen some other things in your, in, in your life. You surely lied. How many lies do you, do you have to tell before you're defined as a liar? Well, God says one. And I know you've gotten uh, you know, so angry that you want to kill somebody, even though you didn't, maybe on the way to church this morning with your kids. I mean, God says that's breaking His law. But see, you people, people change the bar to fit their own standards. They just have to keep it a little better than the next guy or whatever their definition of, of good is. But it's still conditional. And this conditional salvation or salvation by mingling law with grace in religious circles is, is the reason that religious people have no assurance whatsoever and they're, they're full of doubt. I mean, the Catholic uh, or the Mormon or the Muslim has no idea if they've actually done enough. So they have to kill themselves. Or they have to do some other extreme measure of, of devotion to God. But even then, they don't know. So they live a state, in a state of anxious uncertainty. And it might be you this morning. It might not be any of those things. You might just be here as a as a card-carrying Baptist, or, or you don't even know what you are, but, but you live in uncertainty. And, and if so, it's because you're mingling something with Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, The law is the womb of doubt. And anyone who is attached to the law or its works are going to be besieged by all of the doubt born from the law. I think this is really helpful. One commentator illustrated it this way. He said, grant for a minute that the perfect standard can be less than utter perfection, which it can't. That's God's, that's God's bar. Everybody has to, is me measured to the same bar. But, but grant that it's not utter perfection. Um, the minute that you grant that, you can ever be certain whether you've performed well enough. I mean, how pure, how content. How generous do you have to be? He said, if it's based on being honest, just take that one. How honest do you have to be in order to get into heaven? Well, you say, well, a very honest man, a very honest person. We'll let that person into heaven. Well, how about the man who's almost as honest? Maybe he told only one more lie than the very honest man. Would you let him in? And how about the man who's moderately truthful? Or, or the guy who lied for a good cause. I mean, he's better than somebody who's not very truthful at all. What about that man? And what about the man who's quite dishonest? I mean, he's obviously better than a habitual liar. Do you, you see how it's Im impossible it is to draw the line? I mean, you either have to draw it so low that, that everyone like you gets in, which is what most people do, or you draw it so high that you're in constant dread or where you're full of doubt. The reason faith has no value or is made void if one is living by the principle of law is because faith and law are opposites. Because grace and works are opposites. The two things can't cohabitate. They're like oil and water. 
You can shake them up in some religious ceremony and it looks like they go together, but you let them sit there long enough in your conscience and you'll figure out that there is no assurance that's there. It can only be one or the other. And Paul says choosing law means you're rejecting the other, which is faith. Boy said, it is impossible to be saved by both faith and works as it is setting out from Kansas in the direction of California and New York simultaneously. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying, go back to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was based on faith. The minute that you add something to faith that connects you to that promise, you render it inoperative. It's null and void. You change the rules, you, you change the results. And he even tells us why that's the case. Look at verse 15. He says, for the law brings about wrath. Where there is no law, there is no violation. Verse 14 explains why the promise is not by by the law. And verse 15 goes with it. It substantiates what he just got done saying. I mean, Paul says Abraham is the father of all of God's people because it's impossible for the law to have anything to do with God's promise. In fact, he goes on to say it's actually impossible for, for the promise to come through the law because what the law does, if you would add law to the promise, it's going to bring wrath because human beings are sinners and they're unable to keep it. The phrase here, for the law brings wrath, means that when the law was instituted, it was not the means of the inheritance. That was not the purpose of the of the Mosaic Covenant. Because the law inevitably imposes penalties. You have law, there's right and wrong, and for the wrong, you have a penalty. And then, of course, we fail to keep it. I mean, that's what he just got done saying for two, two and a half chapters, right? I mean, Romans 3, 19 through, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin and awareness. So the purpose of the law is not a vehicle to bring a promise to us. It's not a means to gain it. It was to reveal our need. I mean, the law is God's perfect standard of righteousness. It is the bar and it is perfect to show us how far... We fall short. And if there wasn't gospel, if there wasn't promise, then that would be a miserable message. But there is. The bar is here, and you're here, way down here somewhere. But God's the one that brings us to the bar through the promise of Jesus Christ. Now pay attention, because this is kind of an awkward verse, or one that you can get confused. Verse 15. Paul is not saying that there is no sin where there is no law. Do you see that? For the law brings about wrath. Where there is no law, there is no violation or no transgression. It's probably better. I mean, he says there is no transgression. There is no willful stepping over the line if there is no law. Are you ready? Every transgression is sin, but not every sin is a transgression. I mean, you can sin and not transgress. You can fall short of something and not willfully step over the line of something. I mean, both will send you to hell. 
but transgression is more serious. Transgression means that you now have something defined. You have a line defined by God, and then you deliberately break it. You deliberately step over it. I mean, the Bible implies that in several places when it's talking about possessing light will actually bring greater judgment. Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew eleven twenty one when he pronounces woes to Chorazin and Bethsaida. Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida, for the... If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, then you would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, how do you get more tolerable than hell? I don't know. But he says it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a gradation here. James 3 says not, let any of you, James 3, 1, not, let not many of you desire to be teachers. Don't be clamoring to do what I'm doing this morning or what your Sunday school teacher did this, today. Let not many of you desire to be teachers because teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Now, what does that mean? I mean, why? Why will teachers in, in incur a stricter judgment and why will these cities uh, have it worse in the day of judgment? It's not because those other, city, other cities don't sin or because teachers are more wicked than the ones that they teach, although I can testify I am probably more wicked than some of you. It's because those cities and those teachers have more light. They have more law. They have more truth. Therefore, they transgressed in the face of more revelation. Paul says in the same way, once God's law came... It spelled out what pleases God and what doesn't please God. And then he says sin became utterly sinful. He's not saying that there was no sin before the law. It's just the law spelled that out. Let me try to illustrate that for you, the difference between sin and transgression this way. Every section of the road that you drive on has a speed limit that's set by the state. And you can violate the speed limit without even knowing what the speed limit is. That's falling short of the speed limit. I mean, what's the speed limit on an unmarked back road? What's the speed limit in your subdivision if it's, if it's state-owned? I mean, you don't know and you don't care unless there's a police officer behind you, right? You just drive it. And you probably transgress it. Or you probably fall short of it. Now take that concept to the interstate you know the speed limit is 65 or 70 because it's marked. And when you pass uh, uh, the, the speed limit sign that's posted and you mash your foot on the gas anyway, now you've transgressed the speed limit. And that's more serious because it's marked with a clear line. In the same way, when we sin, we deserve punishment because God says right is right and wrong is wrong. But when we have the law or when we know and it's clearly marked out for us and we violate that anyway, it's worse. Let me press that home a little bit. If the principle here is the more truth we have, then the greater our accountability, greater of truth, greater accountability, how accountable are you? How accountable are we? I mean, I think it's easy to look at the uneducated Hindus in India or the African traditional religions and, 
and think, I don't want to be like those people on Judgment Day. I mean, they're worshiping those little statues and doing all these crazy things. But they would rather not be you if you reject Christ coming from a gospel-saturated America with four Bibles on your shelves at home, having heard the gospel from the time that you were young. I mean, all people perish apart from Christ, but it will be worse for you in the day of judgment, having the truth and rejecting it. Your judgment will be based on the level of the truth that you rejected. And Paul says that's why you all, we all need grace. Here's the second confirmation about the way of salvation. This one will go much quicker. God's promises gained by all through faith, so that it might be congruent with grace, so that it might be confirmed through all of God's people. Look at verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it might be in accordance with grace, so that the promises will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, there's several phrases here that build on each other, and they're all full of hope. I mean, Paul now turns to the positive side of the equation and he explains the reason that God has made the promise based on faith. It's because that's the only way that it's congruent with grace. Paul says God has determined that the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham should come through faith in order that it might be by grace. So that it might be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. That's how the argument goes. I mean... For this reason, it is by faith as a purpose clause in order that it might be by grace. And here is the, the, the fundamental, the most fundamental truth in the Bible. God is a God of grace. The creator of mankind is a God who is gracious. And let that sink in for a minute. I mean, here is a God who provides his free grace to his creation and the only way saving grace can come to human beings is by faith. That's the only access to it. Because the very essence of grace means it's not earned. It's not a matter of merit, it's a matter of gift. And that might not, this might not seem like it, but because it's woven into this argument about keeping the law, but this is a significant statement. I mean, it says... It was never God's intention that His promise would be specifically focused on one group only in one country and that it was never His plan that salvation would come through the law, ever. The reason it is by faith is in order that it may be in accordance with grace. The river of faith and grace come together here in this verse. The waters mingle. They flow in the same direction. Faith flows in the same direction of grace. It doesn't try to go upstream. It, it flows with it. You're saved by faith through grace. Your faith is the means by which you're saved. And grace is how and why salvation came that way to you. Paul says grace is the basis of it all. It, it's the larger river here. The promise and the faith are both by grace. And grace is this eternal current that carries the river of salvation from God's heart to yours. And then, and then captures you and carries you onto the inheritance of the, of the promise, the promise of heaven. Abraham's salvation was not due to his perfection. 
for what he possessed. It was in what he was promised, and that promise was unmerited. It was from God. And that's why that you can have hope this morning, no matter what sin's on your record, or how far short, whether you've transgressed or whether you've sinned, because salvation is by grace through, through faith. Faith in what God has done for you, not what in you have done. And that grace travels all the way down to you and me. Look at verse 16. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Are you a descendant of Abraham? You are if you've come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the faith that you possess this morning, if you are a believer, is actually fruit from the promise that God made to Abraham. It's a fulfillment of the promise that he made. Look at verse 17, the beginning of verse 17. As it is written, where does Paul go? He goes back to the Bible. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. I mean, God promised Abraham back then, I will make you the father of many nations. And those people that are part of those nations will come to me the same way you did, which was by faith. And that's a promise before it happened. There's the Great Commission in the Old Testament. It's like the Great Commission in the New Testament. There's a promised side of it. I mean, Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me, so go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them. But long before he said that, he said, I will build my church. I mean, the gospel is an offer. And the gospel is also a promise that God will fulfill. It's an invitation for you to come and it's a guarantee of the outcome. Spoken as if it's already fulfilled. Jesus Christ had a people that God promised to him long before, just like that there, Abraham had nations that were going to come to him. And God said, Abraham, through you I will fulfill my promise. You'll be the example of how to come to me. Just as you came by faith, I will make many children come the same way. I will make you a father of many nations. But did you notice where these children come from? Verse 17 again, Father of many nations, have I made you? It's a quote from the Bible. It's actually Genesis 17, 5. Notice he didn't say, I will make you the father of many Jews, did he? He didn't say, I will make you a father of many nations if they have become Jews or circumcised or keep the law. These children are not Jews. Jews aren't excluded. But Abraham will be the father of many nations. That's of many Gentiles. Do you know when this promise is completely fulfilled? Remember the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, and then the kingdom, and then the new heavens and the new earth. And I said all of the promises to Abraham is going to be fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth. Listen to Revelation 17, 9, 10. After these things I look and behold... A great multitude, which no man can number, which no one can count. Does that sound familiar? From every nation and every tribe and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Come outside, Abraham. Look up in the heavens in the black sky. Count the stars. Can you count them? No, you can't count them. 
I'm going to make you a father of multitudes, an uncountable number of people that have come out of the nations. I will make you a father of many nations, and I'll make you one just like that, a great multitude. God's not the God of the Jews only. He's the God of all nations. So how does Abraham become the father of all that, and how do you become a child of God like Abraham? Verse 16 so that the promise will be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The example of the way to come to God is faith. And God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham that he would do just that. That through Abraham, there would be a seed that would come, not just Isaac, with the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would make many children of God. And those children won't come by being Jewish or by keeping the law or any moral code. They'll come by faith because God's way of salvation is based on grace. It has to be. Because we can't keep the law. That only brings wrath to us. And that promise is being fulfilled this very morning. By offering the promise of Abraham, the promise of salvation to you, If you'll repent and believe, God will save you because He's a gracious God and He can add you to that number. What will heaven be like? I have no idea. I mean, the Bible gives us some glimpses. I don't know, it's going to be way better than here. You know what the centerpiece or who will be the centerpiece of heaven? It won't be the fun that you want to have there. It'll be the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to be able to worship Him full and free, because of what He has done for you. By His grace, if you come to Him through faith. Let's pray. Father, as we come before You this morning, we are thankful. I am thankful, Lord, that salvation is not conditional. Faith is not even a work. Faith is a gift that you give us when we hear the gospel and your spirit opens our eyes and helps us understand and then we, we lay hold of it by faith. We, we call upon you, we reach out. And all of this comes to us, Lord, because you came to us when we couldn't come to you and we surely didn't deserve it. It's grace. And grace is amazing. So I pray this morning, Lord, that as believers, we would rejoice in that and we would look forward to the promise that's coming, the promise that you've made to Abraham that we will inherit a new heaven and a new earth. This one will pass away. But I also pray, Father, for anybody here this morning that's struggling in that womb of doubt, still trying to keep some measure of the law, some measure of goodness, always falling short, always transgressing in the cycle of confessing and doing it again and confessing and doing it again. May this morning, Lord, they hear your grace comes to them in Jesus Christ. And it's through faith, believing in what he has done, you can free them. That's their standing, not what they do or don't do. And I praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.